the Underpowered Hour. On this week's show, Land Rover unveils a new V8 Defender. Arthur Goddard turns 100 years old. I break no less than five idle air control valves. And we play What Would You Prefer? Now, here's the show. Welcome to the Underpowered Hour. I'm Stephen Barris, mild-mannered television executive by day and Land Rover collector by night. You can find out more about my cars and what we're working on at thebarriscollection.com or check us out on Instagram at the Barris Collection. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Ike Goss. Thanks to everyone joining us today. I'm the bias ply to Stephen's radio, the unsynchronized crash box of podcasting, Ike Goss. I own and operate Pangolin 4x4 in Springfield, Oregon, where we live and breathe Land Rovers. Check us out online, Facebook, and Instagram at Pangolin 4x4. All right, Stephen, let's get started. So, in the news this week, uh, Land Rover has announced that for 2021, there will be a V8 Defender once again in the long history of V8 Defenders, starting, well, really starting with the uh, stage one uh, V8, uh, the Series 3 model that had a V8 engine. I had one of those, uh, one of my favorite Land Rovers that I have ever owned and a, and a great car, all the way up to, uh, obviously, the NAS uh, V8s, the North American spec, and uh, the special edition, or, or what was it, the uh, 70, uh, not 75th, it would have been 50th anniversary, sorry, Land Rover in the UK it was very similar. And then, uh, of course, uh, the uh, Works uh, V8. I guess you can also, the Works trophy uh, V8 uh, also in that lineage, but uh, you'll be able to buy a brand new 2021 uh, V8 Defender, and uh, it looks uh, looks the business, as they say. Yeah, this one uh, is purported to have 518 horsepower, as if uh, that weren't enough. Uh, it is supercharged, um, and uh, all the versions that I've seen so far have been sort of a, a black or matte black, semi-gloss black finish. They've uh, they've kind of murdered it out, you know, to make it look a little tougher. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the uh, it will be the top seller amongst footballers in the UK. There's no question about it. It's definitely what uh, you will be driving if you uh, play for uh, any of the uh, UK based football clubs. Is it's sort of the ultimate uh, Chelsea tractor, if you will, in that it's uh, very tough looking, very, uh, uh, you know, very rugged vehicle, but super sporty, super high performance. And I think more so even than the Works V8, uh, classic defenders actually built more or less from the ground up to be able to handle uh, 518 horsepower, which is a whole 500 horsepower more uh, than uh, some of the uh, first series Land Rover. So I think it's a good, uh, you know, it's a good product. It's obviously going to sell a ton. I think the neatest part, though, might be the advertising campaign that they put out around the launch, where you didn't just have the new car, but they also talked about or or showed rather the uh, the old cars. Well, as you touched on earlier, Land Rover has a uh, pretty strong lineage with the V8 engine in a number of their utility models, uh, stretching back to the Stage 1. And uh, our good friend Mr. Nick Dimbleby did a, a wonderful photo shoot uh, with the new V8 Defender, contrasted against some of the classic models, the Stage 1 
the NAS V8 and uh, and so on. Uh, so that was that was really nice to see. He always does a really nice job with those photographs. I like his work a lot, and uh, it was it was cool to see them, you know, kind of uh, harking back to those earlier cars. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting is uh, about this was it, it was a little bit of a a mixed message. You know, last episode we touched on you know Land Rover's continuing vision towards electrified and hybrid vehicles, and then it seems like. Uh, uh, a week or so later, they they bring out this fire-breathing V8, which, you know, fuel economy numbers might not be uh, what you would expect from a company making that sort of statement. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's interesting, right? It's sort of going out with uh, with a bang, maybe, where they're going to produce a car that, I mean, I'm sure the fuel economy is better than you would get on maybe the original Stage 1 or certainly the NAS uh, Defenders, especially as they're getting up in age. Uh, you know, 13 miles, 14 miles a gallon is a good day. Um, I think they'll be a little better than that. Obviously, they have some eco modes and the engine is tuned in such a way where it's trying to be fuel efficient. But yeah, it's an interesting sort of opposite uh, to an announcement two weeks ago about total electrification and carbon neutral. And But just, just but one more thing. Uh, here is a, you know, what is probably a, you know, a sub 20 mile per gallon, uh, certainly probably even worse than that, a uh, vehicle with 518 horsepower. And the I think, again, it's very much an enthusiast car. I don't think they're going to produce a huge amount of them. Um, and of course, as it was kind of buried in that uh Buried in that announcement, but uh, there was some mention of it in actually Nick's, uh, um, his Instagram feed, which is, if you don't subscribe, it is uh, fantastic. Lots of behind the scenes photos of all those photo shoots that he does, plus a ton of classic stuff that he's, uh, you know, camel trophies and things that he's been on over the years. He'll post stuff up there. It's fantastic. But uh, talking about this super high trim level that will be available as well, uh, the Carpathian uh, trim level, which I believe uh, is uh, named uh, after the uh, Ghostbusters 2 villain uh, Vigo the uh, Carpathian. Uh, as Land Rover, classically huge fans of the Ghostbusters franchise, and so I imagine it will be full of, uh, you know, sort of studded leather, uh, a river of slime potentially through the middle of the car. Uh, not exactly sure what, uh, not a lot of details about it yet, uh, but it should be, it should be great. Yeah, I think the the gray. Um, yeah, the gray is nice. It it does look good in the uh, uh, Carpathian edition. I'm not sure how much of a throwback to Ghostbusters too. If you were going to make an edition of a movie, maybe you would pick a stronger film than Ghostbusters too. But yeah, uh, it's a bold choice. I don't know if it was just a licensing thing. That was the only one they could get. Uh, you know, they tried for Top Gun, but wasn't available. I don't know. Maybe maybe. Uh, you know, Ghostbusters 1 was really expensive. Ghostbusters 2, middle of the road. Ghostbusters 3, they, they were going to pay them to do a Ghostbusters 3 edition. It's true. Um, but uh, <laughs> enough about that. Enough about yeah. that. Enough about that. So also uh, in the uh, in the birthday uh, news, uh, Arthur uh, Goddard, uh, the uh, sort of first engineer on the uh, Land Rover uh, program, uh, turned 100 
years old. Um, and of course, our, our good friend Michael Bishop uh, wrote a book uh, about uh, Arthur Goddard. I believe it's called uh, We Found Our Engineer. And a uh, great read, fantastic. You can get it on Amazon. I absolutely suggest you do so. Um, and uh, yeah, so good for Arthur, my goodness. Yeah, what, a, what a, an achievement with a life of achievements. You know, this is a guy who uh, did a lot of the engineering work on, uh, on our favorite vehicle, the, the Series 180-inch. And uh, there's a number of classic photos of him, you know, driving around the early production cars and so on. And uh, pretty amazing that he's, he's reached 100 years old. I, uh, I don't think I'm going to get anywhere close to that. But um, uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Michael's book is, uh, is definitely a worthwhile read. So congratulations to him on that milestone. Absolutely. So uh, I thought we would uh, move on to a little bit of uh, workshop uh, conversation, if you will. Uh, as I mentioned in the top of the uh, show, we uh, had an, uh, an interesting uh, week with, uh, well, I'll start this. Uh, so over the past couple of weeks, my V8, uh, 3.9 liter V8, uh, North American Spec Defender, which is my kind of every other day driver, has been doing, uh, you know, the thing where it revs very high when you start it, and it'll rev a little high anytime it has to go into idle and sort of take a while to settle down, um, have a little sporadic idle. That is usually a pretty good indication uh, that is something is wrong with uh, a little part at the back of the plenum uh, called the idle air control valve or servo, or there's a few different, different ways that people describe it. It. But basically what it is, is it's this uh, little plunger thing uh, that controls how much air is uh, getting into uh, that plenum when it is at idle, when the uh, when the throttle body is closed. And it gets gunked up like crazy for some reason. I don't even really know what the gunk is because it's in, uh, you know, it's in a sort of should be a fairly low gunk uh, part of the process. It's uh, on the other side of the, it's before the valves um, and uh, it, it really should just be the air intake. Uh, but uh, always gets gunked up. It's just something that happens. And so, okay, uh, no problem. Um, pulled it out and uh, cleaned it. Uh, as you sort of do, you hit it with a good amount of brake cleaner, dissolve all the mung that is sort of built up on it, uh, reinstall it. Uh, well, things started going uh, a little wrong when it didn't quite have the right size uh, gasket to put it back in. So I had a little bit of gasket material, punched out a ring that was about the right size. Okay, fine. Um, maybe it was about twice the thickness that it was supposed to be. So, of course, didn't quite reseal properly. That little servo's in the wrong spot. And so, whatever, doing a little bit of uh, – it didn't necessarily make it better. Uh, didn't make it any worse, but certainly didn't get better. Okay, so fine. Maybe it's time to just replace that, uh, you know, that piece altogether. So uh, looked on a line at all of our favorite parts suppliers. It's in stock a few places, but the lead time was fairly uh, far. And then, of course, I came across an article on the Internet that says, well, you know, that that piece is uh, shared uh, with the uh, Hummer, the Hummer H2. Um, I, I did not know that. Exactly the same part. Sort of. Um, exactly the same uh, part. And, it, it you know, it... it uh, it's actually pretty common. The spring tensions and things can be somewhat different, but you know the one that is shared with the Hummer works. Okay, no problem. I happened to ha find one very inexpensively, um, and uh, probably, probably too inexpensively. So <laughs> order this part. Of course, comes next day. No problem. 
Now it's a uh, you know it's a uh, zinc coated uh, you know when they uh, they add the I forget what the process is when they yell add the yellowing agent so it sort of gets that sheeny gold color to a, a zinc cadmium or cadmium that's right cadmium plated uh, zinc uh, body which is fine the actual landor part is a plastic uh, body like a you know, composite material body uh, with a metal part that threads in it sort of threads into. Uh, it, you know, a little plenum adapter that's on the back of the intake plenum. No problem. Get that in a uh, 20 nanometer torque setting. Just so happens that a 32 millimeter wrench fits over the end of it. So easy to put it on the torque wrench. At about 10 nanometers, the thing snaps into two pieces, leaving the uh, threaded piece inside the uh, intake plenum and the other thing um, inexplicably on the floor underneath the car as it bounced Plinko style down uh, through the engine. And so then what would have been a five minute switchover job turns into about a uh, about a 45 minute removing of that back plenum piece cleaned everything out thankfully though the uh the new uh piece that was total garbage did in fact come with a gasket so oh uh, nice. at the end of the day old part now clean uh, as well as uh, really cleaning out the back of the plenum part uh, back together and working perfectly so uh thankfully that entire piece uh, was about a dollar cheaper than simply the gasket uh, from Land Rover. So, as it tends, as it turns out, didn't uh, didn't end up being a big deal. Although having something broken off flush inside of your air plenum and then having to figure out how to uh, get that out, ultimately it was by taking a hacksaw blade and slotting the inside of it and then using a screwdriver to remove it. Um, but uh, but it uh, tends uh, to. Uh, you know, stand to the old adage of uh, if a part from Land Rover is $200 and you can get one for $17, it's probably not a like part. There's probably. <laughs> it might be false economy. However, you know, it might just been through one less vending level, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's you know, true. That's, that's also possible. So you never know until you open the box. But I think that every 15 minute job is one broken bolt away from being a three hour job. Mm -hmm. Um you know, my experience with uh, with intake problems and uh, these sorts of things is almost invariably there is an animal or creature that has made a nest in in that part of the car. You know, a lot of the cars I'm dealing with are, are much older than the, the NAS Defenders. So they get parked in a field somewhere or parked in the woods somewhere or in someone's barn somewhere. And, and typically I find that there, there is a creature or an animal that has made a nest in the air filter or the air intake or the engine bay. And, and this is what's causing my problem. So uh, normally when I'm, I'm diagnosing these sorts of problems, I, I come prepared to exterminate and or chase off, depending on how large it is, the animal that's inside the engine bay. Which, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the original uh, owner's manual for the Series 1 80-inch. There's a series of cartoons, which I love. They're wonderfully yes. drawn and uh, very expressive cartoons. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, these little quips that uh, take place throughout the, the instruction portion of the manual. And, uh, for example, there's... Uh, there's one where uh, an agitated Land Rover owner is is in a bar and um, he's uh, it, it, you know, the part of the manual describes uh, uh, getting water in the fuel 
and the caption to the cartoon is, um, you know, if uh, water ingress is found, you know, be certain to ascertain why. And, and he's yelling at the bartender as if the bartender is watering down his drinks, you know. And this is in the this is in the owner's manual for a Land Rover when it's new. And uh, yeah, I have to say that those cartoons are brilliant. I mean that that book, which you can they, there's so many reprints of it. It's just a good read, even if you don't have an 80 inch Land Rover. It's just a fun. You know, just the sort of terminology they use and things. It's a fun read. It is. It is. And I guess what I was getting to is uh, there's one cartoon in particular, which is should the engine fail to start, ascertain why. And he has the, the hood propped on the Land Rover and there's a there's a pig in the engine bay. <laughs> so uh, clearly they thought about that, that uh, the engine bay would become home to uh, a variety of wildlife. Um, but, uh, it, you know, if it's not the idle airflow sensor, it's probably a, a, a small creature that's it causing could be a creature, yeah. Into we had problems. a uh, we had an Alfa Romeo, uh, a Spider Veloce, uh, which is the car from the graduate. Um, and it uh, there was a, a mouse that had made quite a sizable sort of I wouldn't even say nest, it was a small uh, condominium complex on the top of that motor. And unfortunately, um, someone started and ran that car and drove it several hundred miles before realizing that that was the case. Now, I don't believe that the rodent was home at the time, uh, or they quickly vacated as soon as that motor started. Um, but the uh, the condominium complex of garbage that had been created on top of that motor went with it. And uh, man, it is a uh, it is a it is a chore to scrub all that out of there because it just seems like around the spark plug wells or in the case of the the uh, v8 uh, land rovers the valley uh, the intake uh, plenum valley uh it's just a it's a cozy little little habitat in there and uh of course in the case of the land rover urine drains into the inlet valley into the valve uh, valley so it's one of the few places on the Land Rover that's actually protected from the weather, believe it or yeah, not. <laughs> it's true. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They would, you would never have that problem on the interior of the car because no, there, no. there's no reason to go in there. There was absolutely no reason to go in there. Almost um, never find animals in the interior. It's so inhospitable. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's only human beings are dumb enough to be in there. But yeah, so that was my uh, that was my workshop uh, journey uh, this week. It was, uh, you know, again, like you say, it's one of those. This is a 15 minute job that takes three hours because of, uh, you know, I'm going to say it in a, you know, inappropriately uh, qualitative uh, part uh, and possibly a bit too much eagerness on the old uh, torque wrench, although I am certain I got nowhere near the torque setting for that part. So, yeah, I was just about to ask that question. Where is the torque value for that that part? Where did you find that? It's actually in the it's in the manual. It's in the uh, service ah. uh, manual for the Defender, the NAS Defender specifically, that that uh, part is to be torqued to uh, 20 nanometers, either 20 or 40. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a pretty simple thing. Again, 32 millimeter socket fits over the end of it. And a deep socket fits over the end of it. So it's, it's not even a, much of a, a to-do. It's not like you have to use an offset uh, wrench head or something in order to get the into the little spot where you need to do the torquing. It's really simple. You get fit a wrench right on the end. It's very tall on the engine, so easy to get in there. Um, but uh, once it's broken off inside, uh, less, less easy 
thankfully, uh, I think vintage Land Rover ownerships teaches you a lot about getting broken bolts out of things, and uh, got to, got it down to a bit of a to a bit of a science now as to yeah you you know on the early cars we work on especially the series ones everything is Whitworth and uh, you know nowadays not too many people are familiar with that thread form and uh, they just find whatever bolt is kind of close and put it in there and tighten it down so we get a lot of cars that were worked on in the 80s 90s and uh, there's a lot of fastener repair and broken bolts, and uh, it can be really time-consuming to fix those cars and the, all the cast parts that go along with them because of that damage. Um, you know, I have a friend that restores uh, Indian motorcycles, mm -hmm. and uh, they were famous for making everything on the motorcycle 23 threads per inch, regardless of the diameter of the fastener. Right, they just had their lathe set up to twenty-three threads per inch. Didn't matter what the part was, and that was your that was your thread. And so nowadays, that's like an impossible thread form to find. You have to kind of either make it or buy it from a specialist. But uh, a lot of Indians that were restored, of course, uh, the fasteners weren't available. People didn't have the means to to chase the threads or or get new fasteners. So they have just an abomination of fasteners in them and every time i get an old land rover that that has been previously restored i feel like i'm i i feel for him because that's basically his his life is is repairing those bolts broken bolts and you know chewed up threads on on old motorcycles yeah, that's a uh, – it is a real thing to figure out uh, exactly. I find, You know, the funny thing is I find Whitworth wrenches are similar. They're not all created equal. The cheaper the Whitworth wrench, the less likely it is to actually be formed uh, for the head of uh, Whitworth bolts. Uh, I have – a set of uh, of really good ones, a couple sets of them that work great. And then I have one very cheap set. I think I kind of picked up on a whim at a festival or something in the UK. Um, it was sort of laying on there. It's very cheap. Again, it's very cheap. This is a, the theme maybe of this afternoon. And uh, they just are not right. I, you know, I need to tiny file them to be – actually, they're a little bit too big. So uh, it's not even as much as filing them to be the right size. It's that they're a bit too big. I have also found that to be true. There's some uh, classic brands of wrenches, which are, I would say, trustworthy. You know, you've got your your gold standard, maybe your Snap-on. They, they made uh, Whitworth wrenches a long time ago, not so much anymore. They also made uh, Craftsman, you know, Whitworth wrenches. You'll see those sometimes at, uh, you know, trade uh, fairs, antique shows, you know, these sorts of things. Uh, uh, Gordon and Koken our current production uh, brands that are, are of good quality. Um, and, of course, the, the classic British King Dick of Abington, you know, with the uh, the Bulldog logo. Uh, no one can say King Dick without giggling at least a little bit. Uh, but those are all pretty good uh, brands of Whitworth wrenches. But then there are some Indian manufacturers, and I'm not sure that those are even Whitworth wrenches. I think they might just be standard wrenches that are stamped with an extra W. It very well could be. It certainly stands to reason that they would be. I uh, I have an all Gordon uh, Whitworth wrenches, and uh, and then one, and I don't even know. I think it's called like you know, power wrench or like super torque or some inexplicable name that you know evokes the sense of really 
powerful wrenching that are just total crap. They are the bolt rounders for sure. And I have, they are a, a slightly different finish. And every time I go to use one, I don't do it on purpose. I would grab it by accident. Uh, I said, I should throw this away. And yet I put it back in the toolbox. I don't know why. I can't, I can't bring myself to throw away like, what isn't a good tool? It isn't good. It would just be like I had broken it, but I, it's not broken. So I put it, I put it back for whatever reason. Maybe you should give that set of wrenches to somebody that you don't really like. I have just the guy. <laughs> so I, I thought we could talk a little bit, I because you are the oracle of all Land Rover uh, knowledge and the most canonical uh, source for what is uh, accurate uh, from the uh, the type of coating on a given bolt uh, to the flavor of sandwich that uh, a factory worker would be eating on the day of a, a particular car's assembly um, that we would do a, a little bit of a of a, a would you prefer uh, if you will um, when it comes to uh, classic Land Rover restorations I think a lot of people listening to the show maybe have found it because they are uh, doing said classic Land Rover restorations and uh, and are sort of looking for uh, you know not not the right or the wrong thing to do but but what would you do what would you prefer uh, Ike Goss uh, he who is uh, the oracle of all land rovering well that that is uh, quite the build up here hopefully i can live up to that uh, <laughs> that that introduction um but yeah i think that there is kind of a, an accept a lot of accepted practices and a lot of accepted methodologies for restoring a land rover that doesn't necessarily mean that every land rover has to be the same or done the same way but uh certainly there are some things that are frowned upon did you have something in uh specifically in mind I have a whole list of things that you and I talk about all the time that I thought might be uh, good to introduce to the uh, public uh, discourse. The first, of course, something I am personally uh, uh, working through myself. Uh, would you uh, prefer, Ike, a new remanu? I'm sorry, a new copy of a Zenith carburetor or uh, a Weber uh, replacement if your current carburetor is either a missing entirely? or so far beyond uh, rebuild uh, that it needs to be replaced? I, I like how this question doesn't have, uh, you know, the, the best answer, which would be, you know, a new genuine Zenith carburetor. But, um, you know, between those two, I think I would prefer the Weber carburetor. I also like how you're asking questions that are specifically applicable to your project. <laughs> <laughs> my thinking is hey i have uh, some problems that maybe uh that again uh, you and i talk about all the time maybe these are applicable to the general public um but uh but why not why not start with things uh, that are, are wrong with my cars sure yeah no that makes sense uh, kill two birds with one stone well yeah. uh more specifically i think that the the Weber carburetor in terms of aftermarket carburetors is is a pretty good one to to use straight out of the box it tends to to work and function, it, it is a little bit of a generic carburetor. And so in that sense, the jetting is not quite the same as the original. The original Zenith carburetors, when they're, you know, well set up and, and uh, assembled and tuned, they run really well. But they do have a tendency to warp. And so being older on an age, I would say the vast majority of them are now warped. Um, 
the replacement or reproduction Zenith carburetors, they come pre-warped from the factory. <laughs> and uh, in terms of would you rather, you know, I would say I, I might rather a fork in the eye than have to deal with a reproduction Zenith carburetor. They, uh, they're bad. They're, yeah. they're really bad. I've never heard someone say, uh, you know, those carburetors get kind of a bad rap if you just do this, this, and this. Uh, you know, you can you can make them run nicely. No one has ever said that. Almost everyone has 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 cursed them and cursed the day that they bought one. Yeah, um, yeah. So I strongly agree with that statement. Uh, I have uh, uh, this uh, car uh, came with. Uh, a reproduction Zenith carburetors. There was no option. Uh, it was simply what I uh, what I had, and, and not great. Um, so another question, Ike: Would you uh, rather run a car on a period? And this, I think, is a lot around the use uh, case for the car. But let's just go for it. Would you run on a uh, on a uh, period Land Rover? Uh, a period correct tire, something that might need a tube or something like that, or uh, get something that maybe isn't tread pattern perfect, uh, maybe isn't size exactly perfect, um, but run a, a radial uh, tire? Well, uh, that's a great question. And uh, I think uh, both of those are acceptable. And it really does depend on what your goals are for that particular vehicle. You know, I have cars that have, you know, period tires on them. And, uh, you know, some of the period reproduction tires are good quality and, uh, you know, they hold up to modern use. They suffer from some of the, you know, engineering flaws that the original did, you know, that they're typically bias ply. And so the cords run uh, perpendicular to the direction of travel of the tire. And because of that, they can get flat spots if you leave the vehicle sit. Um, they have some... Uh, you know, characteristics that are in some circumstances an advantage and in other circumstances maybe a disadvantage. And one of those would be in a bias ply tire, the sidewall is quite rigid, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's great when you're, you know, uh, trying to keep the wheel away from a rock, maybe. But it's not so great when you're trying to, you know, get the tire to deform for maximum traction. So if you're airing down a bias ply tire, they tend to be pretty rigid, you know. Uh, the other time it's not really ideal is when you're on a wet road and the, the compound of the tire tends to be a little stiffer than what you would find in a modern radial tire. And so their wet weather traction isn't what I would call fantastic. But certainly, you know, we all like old cars to some extent because of how they look, you know, and, and the style and a lot of the, uh, the feel that you get of driving them. Uh, but certainly, you know, going with a, a vintage or, or old looking tire, it, it, it definitely gives the vehicle that flavor you know, when you're driving the car and you're, you're looking at it, you're, you're inspecting it, it looks right, you yeah. know. Yeah. Having said that, there's some good radial tires available. Um, you know, there's some great brands. BF Goodrich makes a good, good, great radial tire. All the, you know, major manufacturers make pretty good tires. Mm -hmm. Goodyear makes some great tires and so forth. Um, I uh, so I guess the short answer is I have both on on my cars. How about you? Yeah, yeah I do too. I do too. I actually, uh, in addition to that, I actually use 
a retreaded, uh, remanufactured tire from a company called Treadrite on the Defender because uh, as we do quite a bit of uh, rallying with that car, you run through tires real quick when you spend most of your time on this sort of sandpaper rocks we have here in Southern California. You would run through a several hundred dollar uh, rock crawly mud uh, terrainy tire uh, very quickly. So uh, I found a number of years ago a company called Treadrite that does a uh, remold, edge to edge, bead to bead remold. And they're great. They're really good. They're a hundred bucks a tire. And you can wear them out, you know, inside of about a year. They probably go year, year or two with the almost entirely, again, when I'm not driving back and forth in my house, but when it's being used for what it's built for, um, off-road uh, driving. And so, yeah, that's kind of an interesting uh, sort of, I guess, uh, sub category is the idea of not just a tire that looks correct for the car, because certainly the Series 1 um, and uh, and my Series 3 have sort of correct uh, tires that are kind of a hybrid of that, right? The Michelin tires on the Series 3, which I know you're a huge fan of. I got those tires from you. Um, and they run really well on the road, and they look great on the car. They're a really good compromise tire for a car that gets driven a lot um, versus the Series 1 that has – I have a set of original tires, but I, those don't go on the car because they're 75 years old. So uh, I still have them, though. I haven't, haven't thrown the tires away even though – Maybe I should, but um, but yeah, that a car like that needs to have exactly the right tire, right? It has to be, uh, you know, be that the military style tire or, um, or the Avon style tire that's sort of period correct for the car. I think those are the sort of thing where, listen, you're not taking that on, um, you know, a, a, a thousand mile road trip where you need to worry about uh, tire economy and stuff. Certainly, hopefully, you're driving it for hundreds of miles a week, but uh, it's a different kind of thing, right? You're not taking it on the freeway. You're not doing things that you would do maybe with some of the more uh, modern cars. So I think that, you know, the tire really finishes off a really classic restoration, you know, really perfectly with exactly that right tire, with that right tread pattern. And that's probably a tire for the life, functional life of that vehicle that you'll have it for anyways. You're not going to wear them down by use. Yeah, some of those uh, vintage or period tires can be very expensive. And so, you know, depending on how much you drive the car, that's another consideration. Um, you know, the compounds do tend to be a little uh, different than, than modern tire compounds do. They, they tend to age and get kind of hard. And maybe that's just a factor of the cars they're put on don't tend to see as many miles. I uh, do drive my Series 1s quite a bit, and some of those ones that I drive do have older-style bias-ply tires, and I've had pretty good luck with them. But, uh, man, on ice and, ice and wet roads, they are uh, um, exciting, maybe, <laughs> is a diplomatic way of putting it. But uh, I guess that's part of an old vehicle anyway. You've got to you know pay attention, be more careful, uh, these sorts of things. Um, uh, what else would we rather do? Well, let's say for the last uh, for the last piece here, um, I think this is a little tiny bit more general about drivability uh, versus uh, authenticity. And I think you and I kind of fall on the same side of the um, you know we have a lot of cars, and so uh, the the drivability piece is a little less. But it kind of around the idea of would you rather have things like retractable seat belts, uh, a modern let's say LED. Uh, headlight or gauge cluster light, um, and things uh, like electronic points uh, or electronic ignition versus uh, a classic point set. Things that 
looking at the car, initially no one's gonna be able to tell that you have done this. Maybe I would put titanium valves into that mix as well, although that's kind of a, a very different sort of thing and probably not really uh, something that you, you shouldn't do. But uh, but what, what's your opinion on that, Ike? What do you think about uh, making a car, uh, you know, sort of invisibly modern in those uh, conveniences versus having something that is really uh, sort of more of a time machine? Well, this is a great question and one that I deal with uh, with customers on a, a really frequent basis. And uh, certainly there are some amenities that are really nice to have. Um, you know, great brakes is one of those. And so I think, uh, you know, brake upgrades are, uh, I'm all for them. I uh, put disc brakes on a lot of cars and uh, I love having good brakes on a car. And, uh, you know, certainly the drum brakes can be made to be good, but, uh, um, you know, the cost and investment of time to get them there is, uh, is frequently prohibitive uh, when you have a, a car that's had a lot of miles or has missing parts on it. The disc brakes are a great, great way to go. Um, seat belts, I, I think seat belts are great. I think everyone should use seat belts. I don't have them in all of my cars. I uh, recognize that older Land Rovers, as, and as they get older, they are they are less and less safe. They have no safety equipment whatsoever, other than brakes, you might say. Um, and so I tend to treat old Land Rovers like motorcycles. I recognize that they are unsafe. I recognize that they have no safety equipment. And uh, I try to, to drive accordingly, drive defensively. Um, and I think that is uh, the best safety feature, but but certainly you know safety belts uh, are in modern cars for a reason, and putting safety belts in an older car isn't a bad idea. Uh, I, I I don't think I would ever recommend against that unless uh, you know there was some situation where you had a an extremely rare or important car that was never going to be really driven, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would advocate for safety equipment, brakes and seat belts and that sort of thing in almost every case. Um, part of my interest and excitement about old vehicles and Land Rover specifically has to do with uh, the analog nature of those cars. And so um, I'm not a huge, I, I don't get excited about LED lights at all. Um, you know, they, they don't really do anything for me. Uh, you know, and in certain cases they can be detrimental to the function of the car. One of those is the, uh, alternator warning light. The alternator warning light needs a certain amount of resistance in order to, for the alternator to function properly. And so one of the common things that we get is a customer calls and says, my alternator's not working, um, you know, and I, I often ask, did you replace the dash lights with LED lights? And they sometimes respond in the affirmative. And I say, well, you need an incandescent lamp for the warning light for the alternator to function properly. So you actually need to revert to an incandescent light there or put a resistor in, in that circuit so that uh, the alternator is fooled. Um, so, you know, I, I don't love the way the LED lights look on an old Land Rover. You know, the ones that they sell, they're not generally very high quality instead of being like a chrome and glass and rubber and sort of traditional materials. They're almost invariably plastic of the least quality that is made in a place that you wouldn't want to visit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, 
Yeah, so not a fan of that. Uh, and, and the same can be said of electronic ignition. Electronic ignition is wonderful. It, it, it's, uh, it, it works. Um, it is reliable. But the thing that I don't like about it is that you cannot troubleshoot it. It, it is a sealed uh, circuit board in a lump of plastic and so if there is a problem, there's no way to really test it. Either works or it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so for a vehicle that I want to take on a trip or that I need to be reliable, I don't like having those sorts of components in the car. You can almost always get points to work. You know, you can, even if it's 70 years old and the points are pitted, you know, like you can almost always get points to work and you can easily troubleshoot them with a, a test light. And uh, I like that ability uh, to troubleshoot and repair them and points are inexpensive you know they're uh, seven to ten dollars electronic ignition is uh, 150 dollars something like that mm -hmm. so i do really like that the downside of points is they have moving parts and those moving parts wear and so you have to adjust them as as the contact um, wears the points gap decreases or diminishes so you got to keep an eye on that so that was uh that was a multi-part question you know yeah, and, I did no, my, and a did. great and uh like i said i think we're very aligned on this on the electronic ignition piece uh, for me it's also um you have so much adjustability everywhere else in the chain um you know and everything is so interrelated to take out that one point of adjustability to get, you know, because you can always sort of, again, you can always, uh, if, uh, if if your stupid carburetor is not working to spec, you can always <laughs> uh, slightly uh, vary your timing to get things, uh, you know, back in if you have. So when you take away your ability to make, uh, uh, again, a tweak a little bit out of spec to get something else to kind of come in and obviously don't leave it like that. But uh, I think to your point, right, it's something where you can you can get a better running engine if uh, maybe overall the whole piece isn't in quite top shape if you have more points of adjustment. Now, of course, that's also uh, the idea of trying to draw a circle with an Etch-a-Sketch a little bit where you have so many points of uh, uh, of adjustment that, you know, very hard to, to make something, uh, you know, sort of uh, linear. But I, I kind of agree. I think that, you know, on the seatbelts thing, it's funny, I treat the, the you know, my uh, seatbeltless cars exactly the same. You do kind of think of it as a uh, as a motorcycle, which I also, uh, you know, uh, ride motorcycles. And so, you know, you're sort of inheriting that risk where, you know, don't assume anybody can see you, don't assume anybody can hear you, which is kind of funny in a little 80-inch Land Rover, because they could probably hear you. But, um, you know, but don't don't assume. You're a tiny little car uh, compared to things that are on the road, uh, an Escalade or something. And so, you know, you have to be very aware uh, of, of what you're doing. And you should be anyways. It's a car that you obviously don't want to be uh, in any kind of an accident uh, in. Um, but if you are, you probably want to be flown, th uh, thrown free of the uh, of the impending fire. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe for the best, uh, you know, to not have them. Yeah. You know, in some cases, that's true. You know, back to the um the electronic ignition, I think that a lot of people install the electronic ignition because their distributor is worn out. Mm -hmm. And so they can't keep a consistent points gap because the internal parts of the distributor are so sloppy and they put points in, it still doesn't run right. They put the electronic ignition in, it runs well. But uh, I think that's kind of a Band-Aid solution. And yeah. uh, in those cases, you should just rebuild the distributor because there's probably other things that that is uh, you know that are worn out or they're not working. Yep. I mean, it's funny. I have a distributor sitting ready to go into the Series 3, which uh, oh, it's too late in the day again today, so probably won't happen today, but maybe 
maybe over the weekend or into next week. So, Well, Stephen, I had a wonderful time on this week's edition of the Underpowered Hour. How about you? I absolutely did, Ike. It is always a pleasure uh, indeed, and I look forward to uh, the world uh, of all things uh, vintage uh, Land Rover and beyond uh, next week on uh, another installment of the Underpowered Hour. Until then. Until then, indeed. Cheers for now. The Underpowered Hour is produced by me, Steve Barris, and Ike Goss. Consider supporting the show through our Patreon, and when you do, you'll be given access to exclusive content and Underpowered Hour merch. Want even more Underpowered Hour? Check out our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 